Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. That's Luke 12, 4 and 5. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You better watch out. I think Brother Iverson's going to turn us into an amening congregation eventually. And I'm excited about that. We need some more amens in here. So there's a story told about a politician. I figure this is a great time of year to talk about politicians. So a story is told about a politician who had to have a, a major operation done. And so he was taken to the hospital. He was uh, scheduled for surgery that day. The surgery went well. It was a success. And when he awoke from the procedure, he woke up in his hospital room, and all the curtains were pulled close. And he asked the nurse that happened to be in there, he said, how long did that procedure take? Is it nighttime already? Why are the curtains all closed? And the nurse said, no, the, the, the surgery went well. It, it only took X number of hours. It's not nighttime yet. There just happened to be a building on fire across the street, and we didn't want you to wake up and think it went bad. <laughs> you know, many people, including myself at times, joke about hell. But the biblical teaching on the reality of hell is no laughing matter. What the Bible says about hell should motivate us to want to go to heaven. In fact, that seems to be part of the reason Jesus talked so much about hell. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gave a motivational speech to the apostles as he prepared to send them out on a, a, on a missional campaign. And in his speech, he acknowledged the possibility that they would encounter persecution. And this is what he said. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The point Jesus was making, or, or the point is that Jesus was willing. He was willing to motivate people not only by appealing to the beauty and the splendor of heaven, but also by appealing to the danger and horror of hell. And this morning, I'm going to attempt to do the same. Now, you, you may recall that a couple of weeks ago, we began this new series titled Foresight, and it's our objective in this series to look ahead and to long for heaven. And one thing that can help us long for heaven is a desire not to go to hell. Now, I, I don't want that to be anyone's primary motivation for going to heaven, but it can at least be a preliminary motivation for going to heaven. And so, we need to consider what the Bible has to say about hell. And I've got to tell you, I didn't really enjoy preparing this sermon. It was not fun to spend my week in the office searching through the Bible to find everything it has to say about hell and then to condense that 
into a 60-minute sermon. Just kidding. It's not, that was a great laugh. It's not enjoyable to spend your time studying about hell. I would much rather be talking about much more pleasant and enjoyable topics than hell. But the job of a preacher is to present the whole counsel of God. So we can't ignore hell. It's in there. And the Son of God, the Word that became flesh, spoke about it more than anyone else. So it's worth talking about. So what does the Bible say about hell? Well, the first thing I want you to notice that the Bible says about hell is that it is necessary. Now that sounds strange at first. But the necessity of hell is the result of the nature of God. What I mean is that God in Scripture, he, He's defined as love. God is love, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. God is defined in Scripture as good. Jesus Himself said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 18 that no one is good except God alone. But there are other qualities of God that we cannot ignore. In particular, God is the epitome of holiness. When Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2 for a child. She declared, There is none holy like the Lord. God Himself speaking to the Israelites when He gave, uh, when he gave the law in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2, He declared, I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then called on them to be holy like Him. And Isaiah goes so far as to refer to God as the one whose name is holy. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Now, what what does that term mean? What does it mean to be holy? You've probably heard before, maybe even in sermons I've presented, that the, the term holy refers to being sacred, to being set apart, to being consecrated. That's the idea lying behind this word holy. In reference to God, what is God separated from? What is God set apart from? What is God consecrated from? All that is evil. All that is unrighteous. All that is categorically sinful. See, the fact that He is separated from all that is evil and all that is wrong, that's why God is the epitome of holiness. He cannot and will not sin. James declared in James chapter 1 and verse 13 that God cannot be tempted with evil. And multiple times throughout the Bible we're told that God cannot lie. Those type statements are, are an indication to us that God does not, will not, cannot sin. But the holiness of God doesn't just mean He can't sin. It also means that he can't be around sin. Listen to the way God is described in the following passages. In Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4, David identified God as the one who does not take pleasure in wickedness, as well as one who does not dwell or associate with evil. In fact, 
One translation of this passage says, You are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. Isaiah stated in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 that our iniquities have separated us from God and that our sins have hidden His face from, his face from us so that He will not hear us. And finally, there's Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. Habakkuk said that God's eyes are too pure to approve evil and that he cannot look on wickedness with favor. Or as another translation says, you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. See, all throughout Scripture, God is described in terms that indicate he can't even be in the presence of evil, of wickedness, of sin. That his holiness cannot allow him to be around anything that is unholy. And so on the day of judgment, when this world ceases to exist and everyone appears before the judgment seat of Christ, those who refuse to surrender to the atoning work of Jesus on the cross will have to go somewhere, but they can't go into the presence of the Lord. In fact, when you jump over to the book of Revelation and you go to chapter 21 and you read these descriptions of the new Jerusalem that's coming down, one thing we're told about heaven is that it will be absent anything impure or anything evil because that can't be in the presence of God. So hell is the necessary destination of those who remain in their sin-stained state. Hell is necessary because we serve a God who loved us so much that he did everything in his power to save us. but who, because of his own holiness, must pour out his wrath on those who do evil. So to quote one author, heaven is the final outworking of God's love. Hell is the final outworking of his holiness. Hell is necessary because in his holiness, God cannot be in the presence of sin. And if your sins are not paid for at the cross, then you will carry them with you when you appear at the judgment seat. So hell is necessary, and hell is prepared. You know, we don't really think of hell in terms of a, being a place prepared like we do heaven. Because if you journey over to John chapter 14, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he specifically says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So we often think about heaven in terms of a place prepared. But what about hell? We don't think of it as something that has been intentionally prepared by God like we do heaven. Journey over to Matthew chapter 25, and I want you to notice something stated in the parable of the sheep and the goats, the, the last parable of that chapter. 
Jesus presented that parable as a judgment day scenario. And in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34, Jesus declares that on the day of judgment, the sheep will hear him say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now skip ahead to verse 41. In verse 41, we're told that, G, that the, the Son of Man will say to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus says that heaven is prepared for those who do his will. And hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, one common misconception we have is that in hell, Satan will reign. And in hell, Satan is the ruler, and he's there to torture those who are sent to hell. That is absolutely false. Hell was made for the devil. Hell was designed for the devil. He's going there not to sit on a throne and rule. He's going there to face his eternal punishment. So don't picture hell as a place, as an abode where Satan reigns. Because that's not what hell is for. God reigns over hell just as much as he reigns over heaven. It's just hell is the one place God won't be. But the devil and, the, and his angels aren't the only ones who will be residing in hell. I alluded to this last week. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we're told that those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer, punish, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And so hell is not just, just prepared for the devil and his angels. It's prepared for all those who reject God in some fashion. Hell is as much a prepared place as heaven is. And those who go there will experience just how horrible it is. Because that's the third thing you need to know about hell. Hell is horrible. And that's an understatement. I cannot convey in a single word just how bad hell is. So what we're going to do is we're going to appeal to the teachings of Jesus in particular and see the metaphors he used to describe this place. I've mentioned a couple of times already that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. The word hell in Greek is Gehenna. You'll find it utilized 12 times in the New Testament. Only one of those times it wasn't said by Jesus. So 11 of the 12 appearances of the word that's translated hell were used by Jesus. And Jesus described hell using three primary metaphors. 
First, he described hell as a place of isolation. Now, Jesus frequently associated hell with darkness. In two of his parables, the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the talents, and one of his teaching moments when he healed the centurion's servant with his word, in those moments, Jesus associated punishment with being cast into outer darkness. The metaphor of darkness is worth mentioning. Because the thing about darkness is it implies isolation. It implies aloneness. It implies separation in particular. You see, the metaphor of, uh, of darkness is an indication that we're going to be separated from God. We're going to be isolated from God. Throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light, and His absence is consistently associated with darkness. John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. You think about when God led the Israelites through the wilderness. In the darkness of night, what did he manifest his presence through? A pillar of fire, a source of light. What did Jesus identify himself as? The light of the world. All throughout Scripture, the metaphor of light is used to depict God. But hell is a place of darkness, which indicates God's absence from it. Think about how these parables depict this idea of separation and isolation. You have the parable of the virgins in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. They talk about an unprepared, or they talk about unprepared women who were denied access into the house with the bridegroom. That's separation. That's isolation. The parable of the talents follows in Matthew chapter 25. And in verse 30, we're told that that one talent servant was cast out of the master's presence. That's separation. That's isolation. And in the parable of the sheep and the goats, which we've already referenced, they were told by the Son of Man, or the goats, excuse me, were told by the Son of Man to depart from me. That's separation. That's isolation. See, the emphasis of this metaphor of darkness is that hell is a place where God will not be, a place of complete separation from the author of life and the giver of all good gifts. We may underestimate just how horrible that aspect of hell is going to be. To be in a place that God will not be with you any longer. And Paul summarized this consequence quite well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 when he referred to hell as a place away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. 
That's not a place that I would want to be. This life on this earth is as far away as I want to be from the presence of the Lord. This life on this earth is as close to hell as I ever want to experience. Hell is horrible because hell is a place of isolation. But hell is also described as a place of affliction. The most notable metaphor associated with hell is fire. When Jesus spoke of hell, he, he referenced the hell of fire in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 and Matthew chapter 18 and verse 9. He referred to it as unquenchable fire in Mark chapter 9 and verse 30, 43, as well as an eternal fire in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Now, the metaphor of fire implies that hell will be a place of discomfort, a place of pain, a place of suffering. It's the metaphor we are most familiar with. And I want to call your attention to the story of the rich man and Lazarus that appears in Luke chapter 16 between verses 19 through 31. Whether or not this story should be taken literally as a true story or allegorically as a parable is often debated. But regardless of where you stand on that debate, one thing is certain. The experience of these two individuals is supposed to help us see the difference between our two potential eternal destinations. And what I want you to notice within this parable is that over the course of six verses, between Luke 16, verse 23, and verse 28, four references are made to the pain experienced by the rich man. In verse 23, the rich man is said to be in torment. In verse 24, he requests for Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool his tongue because he was in anguish. In verse 25, it is said that while Lazarus is comforted, the rich man is in anguish. In verse 28, the rich man requests for Lazarus to go warn his brothers so that they may not come into this place of torment. Torment and anguish, and I'm sure there are other terms used depending on the translation that you have. Those are the words used to describe the experience of the rich man. I don't know about you, but I tend to, to uh, try to avoid torment and anguish when it is all, at all possible for me. Now, I did grow up an Arkansas Razorback fan, so that, some of that's unavoidable. But in general, don't we try to avoid torment and anguish? Didn't this rich man want someone to go prevent anyone else from coming to the place that he was? Isn't that enough to tell you just how horrendous hell will be? That an occupant of it is saying, don't come here? Whether or not this fire is going to be physical or spiritual, I don't know the answer to that. But I don't think it's necessary either. Because the point of the metaphor is to describe the pain associated with a place where evil, wickedness, unrighteousness, and sinfulness are punished. 
Hell is not a place you want to go because hell is a place of affliction. So when Jesus talked about hell, he described it as a place of darkness, which infers isolation and separation. He talked about it in terms of fire, to dis- which infers affliction. But Jesus had one other metaphor he often used and often associated with hell. And that was a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is an indicator that hell is a place of lamentation. Several times in Jesus' teaching, he referenced not only darkness, but weeping and gnashing of teeth. Such terminology appears in the parable of the, of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. It also appears in the parable of the weeds, Matthew chapter 13, verse 42. The parable of the net, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 50. And the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 13. And the parable of the faithful steward in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 51. The whole idea behind weeping and gnashing of teeth is self-reproach and remorse. One preacher compared this experience of self-reproach and remorse to that feeling you get when you're driving over the speed limit and you look in your rearview mirror and you see those lights and you get pulled over and all you can think is, why did I do that? Or maybe as a student, you're taking a test and you missed a couple questions on the test and found out you got a grade lower than you really wanted to make on that test, and when you reviewed the questions you missed, you realized you actually knew the answer to those questions. And it's that feeling of remorse and regret because you knew the right answers. You knew what you could have put, and you knew you could have gotten a better grade. Or that feeling you get when you're sending a text to someone and it was just supposed to go to that one individual and you realize you sent it to the group instead, you know that feeling. We could come up with numerous examples of of these feelings of self-reproach and regret, but none of them compare to the weeping and gnashing of teeth associated with hell because here's the thing. In hell, you're going to regret every decision you made that kept you out of heaven. And you're going to realize you can't go back and change anything. Returning to the story of the rich man and Lazarus, I I don't know if this aspect of the, the story applies to heaven and hell, but isn't it interesting that the rich man could look across and see Lazarus. He could see the comfort of the experience that Lazarus had while he himself was being tormented. Again, I I don't know if that's going to apply to the heaven-hell afterlife, but I'm certain that the rich man in seeing Lazarus 
escalates his remorse all the more because he could have been there. See, hell is not just going to be a place... Let me back that up. Hell is going to be a place of holistic pain. Will it be physical pain? Maybe, since we do have a new resurrected body after this life, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Obviously, it's going to be spiritual pain because you're going to be separated from God. This weeping and gnashing of teeth makes me think of mental anguish as well. Hell is the place you don't want to go. Because Jesus described it with all these metaphors trying to convey to us the horrender. That did not sound right. The horror of hell. Hell is horrible. But beyond that, we also have to acknowledge that hell is eternal. Some people don't want to believe that. Some people contend that unlike heaven, hell has a limited duration. They argue that certain biblical language applied to those who go to hell can be interpreted as annihilation rather than eternal punishment. Annihilation is the belief that at some point God will simply cause the wicked to cease to exist. And so those who believe this appeal to the language of death and destruction that is frequently used in the reference to the wicked throughout Scripture. So they go to passages like Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, which says that God will destroy both soul and body in hell. And Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, which says that those who fail to repent will perish. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, which says the wages of sin is death. And then there's Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19, which says that the end of those who are enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. And it's argued that such verses indicate a cessation of existence rather than an eternal torment. But there are several passages that specifically refer to the punishment experienced in hell as a never-ending experience. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, both the punishment experienced by the goats and the reward experienced by the sheep, both are said to be eternal. Matthew 25, verse 46 says, these, a reference to the condemned, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The fact that both heaven and hell are called eternal here means there is some equity between them. Some equity, this is not a house. Equality between them. If hell is described as eternal and heaven is described as eternal, then they both have the same time frame. Not only that, we can turn... And look at the fact that the fire associated with hell is repeatedly described as eternal. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8. Matthew 25 verse 44. And unquenchable. 
Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Luke chapter 3, verse 17. And since fire is the metaphor consistently used in the Bible to depict the affliction of hell, its eternal or unquenchable quality is an indicator that it will never cease to exist. It's also worth mentioning that in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus indicated that the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. We've already made reference to that. But if you turn over to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, you'll read that the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That passage indicates that the lake of fire, which is associated with hell, is a place of eternal, never-ending suffering. Then, of course, there's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, which we have looked at already. There, Paul specifically said that those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. The point is, we just referenced a lot of passages we've already looked at. But in all of those passages, punishment, hell, are consistently described as never-ending, as eternal. Our minds can't even wrap, them, wrap themselves around it. It's joyous to think about heaven as a state of eternalness. The fact that when you arrive there, your rest is eternal. Your worship of God is eternal. Your presence with God is eternal. And there can be great comfort in understanding and accepting that our life in heaven is never-ending. But we have to simultaneously accept that those who go to hell will experience the negative side of eternity. There is no end to it. And that's going to bring us to our last point for today. See, it wasn't 60 minutes. Well, I'm not done. This is the most important point today. And it's that hell is chosen. You know, it's very easy for us to look at Scripture and assume that God sends people to hell. The language about hell in the Bible often depicts God as casting people into hell. Passages such as Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 9, Mark chapter 9 and verse 45 and 47, they speak of being thrown into hell. There's even a passage in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 where Peter said that God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell. Well, he's using a different word for hell there, a word that would probably be better translated as, transliterated as Tartarus. But we, we develop this mindset that God is casting people, throwing people into hell. But the reality is, God does not want anyone to perish. 
as he said in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Instead, he wants everyone to come to repentance. God does not want you or anyone else to end up in hell. And that's why God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God does not want anyone to go to hell. So what God has done, as one preacher said, he has granted you the dignity to choose where your sin will be judged. You can choose to have your sin judged on the cross, or you can choose to have your sin judged in hell, but God gives you that choice. You see, nobody will claim that God sent them to hell, because as one author wrote, God does not send people to hell. He simply honors their choice. Think about John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 for a moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus said that God loved you so much that he intentionally and sacrificially provided a way to keep you out of hell. So if you end up in hell, it's not because he sent you there. It's because you did not accept his solution to your sin problem. I like the way one preacher said it. He said it's not so much that people get cast into hell, but that they get there on their own when they walk by the cross that God put in the way to keep them out of hell. I started this sermon by referencing a politician, and I'm going to conclude it the same way. There's a story told about Calvin Coolidge when he was vice president. During that time, he was presiding over the Senate, which is one of the uh, responsibilities uh, that is given to a vice president. And a couple of senators got into a heated debate. One of them got so angry that he told the other, you can go to the place that we've been talking about today. And the senator he said that to turned to Calvin Coolidge and said, did you hear that? He just told me I can go to. Calvin Coolidge happened to have a Bible with him. He held it up. He said, well, I've been reading the rule book, and it says you don't have to go there. That's ultimately the whole point of the sermon. You don't have to go there, but you need to know about it. You need to know that it exists, and you need to know how it's described because that's the place you don't want to go. So the question of this hour is right now, if Jesus came back, 
would you go to hell? Right now, if Jesus came back and you appeared before the judgment seat, would you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord? Or would you hear, depart from me, I don't know you? Right now, if Jesus came back, would you be sent to a place of eternal rest and eternal worship? Or would you be sent to a place of eternal pain and eternal suffering? It's not very often that I take much time to talk about hell. But the reality is, it's spoken about in God's Word to keep us from going there. And it might just be that numbered among this audience right now, there are some people who are headed there. And I'm begging you today. I'm begging you today. Don't go there. If you need to make a change in your life to ensure that you're not going there, you have that opportunity right now because I'm about to close my mouth. Maybe you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. Repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of, these, of those sins so that you won't go there. Maybe you've made that decision, but you haven't walked in the light as he is in the light. And you need to make a course alteration so that you won't go there. I don't know specifically what you need to prevent yourself from going there, but you do. And God does. Why don't you make the decision right now to not go there while together we stand and sing?